Welcome to a very special episode of the Farm Exec Podcast. It's our 100th episode, and we're so glad to be here sharing this milestone with you. I'm Elaine Quilici, Editor-in-Chief of Farm Exec Magazine, here along with my co-host, Group Social Media Editor, Miranda Schmalfus. Farm Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest insights to master the science of success. On this week's episode, Miranda and I have the pleasure of speaking with the editors of Pharmaceutical Executive to talk about the industry trends we're anticipating in 2022 and beyond. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with our editors, Lisa Henderson, Julian Upton, Fran Pilaro, and Andy Stedna. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truesterumntwk.com. Hello, podcasters. Today, Miranda and I are happy to welcome Lisa Henderson, Group Editorial Director, Julian Upton, European and Online Editor, Fran Polaro, Senior Editor, and Andy Studna, Associate Editor of Pharmaceutical Executive. They're here to discuss some exciting industry trends for 2022, which we recently wrote up in our January issue. With the help of our editorial advisory board, we were able to identify trends in areas such as Chinese biotech, corporate branding, psychedelic medicines, and market access barriers, just to name a few. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. Thank you, Elaine. Thanks, Thanks Elaine. Elaine. Thank you, Elaine. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. So, Elaine, why don't you get us started with a quick recap of the Outlook articles you wrote for the issue, Psychedelic Medicines and the Future Impact of Immunology on Oncology and Rare Disease. Of course, Miranda. I had two really interesting topics to cover. The first was the renaissance of psychedelic drugs, which includes ketamine, MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy or molly, psilocybins, more commonly known as magic mushrooms, DMT, and LSD. I know it might sound a little fringe, but there's definitely a trend happening here. After noticing a growing number of press releases in my email inbox and just hearing more about it in the mainstream media, I thought it was time to see what's really going on in the space. So while some of these drugs have been a part of ancient cultures for ages, it was interesting to learn that others were actually discovered by pharma companies originally. But research pretty much stopped in 1970 when President Richard Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act into law. And that made psychedelics Schedule One drugs. It wasn't until the 1990s that research began to resume in what one of my sources called a second generation of psychedelic research. Today, psychedelics are showing promise in the fight against very specific severe mental illness, such as treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, addiction, anxiety. In fact, they seem to be the first real possibility for change in mental health since the introduction of SSRIs in the 1980s. What my sources said to look out for was the changing legislation around these drugs and the hope that, you know, eventually they can expand to include broader indications. While we wait for that to happen, we continue to see interest in this area grow, which includes the growth of institutional and academic programs, psychedelic specific conferences, and even celebrity support. And if you look at some of the current financial research out there, the psychedelic markets expected to grow from, I think it was 2.1 million in 2019 to anywhere between 6.9 million and 11 billion in 2027. So there's definitely a lot of interest in this market and I'll be further writing about it in our March issue. So keep an eye out for that. 
The other topic I covered was the expansion of immunology, specifically in oncology and rare disease. Most of the world got their first lesson in immunology thanks to the mRNA vaccines and monoclonal antibodies created for COVID. But what people may not realize is that a good amount of immunology research and development was actually born out of these two areas. And now that the science has had you know, an accelerated boost and ultimately was proven successful for COVID, Pharma is ready to expand the science back in these areas. In addition to mRNA and monoclonal antibodies, researchers are exploring the combination of mRNA vaccines with other immune-based therapies and other RNA mechanisms, such as their small interfering RNA, which is known as siRNA, RNA interference, or RNAI, and antisense oligonucleotides, or ASOs, are also being studied in oncology and rare disease. One of my sources talked about how many diseases have an immune system component to them. And to quote him, finding the interplay between the immune system and bodily organs will reveal a treasure trove of future druggable targets. So he sees this as having far-reaching opportunities. And you know, if you take a look at the recent biotech IPO boom, it has been led by oncology and rare disease. In fact, I mentioned in the article that in 2021, there were 42 oncology IPOs compared with 34 in 2020, 15 in 2019, and 17 in 2018. And rare disease came in second place with 10 IPOs in 2021, compared with 12 in 2020, but three in 2019 and eight in 2018. So interest is really expected to grow. There's a high value of investment in this area and the potential to treat a number of indications. Wow, that sounds really interesting. So Fran, Elaine had mentioned the COVID-19 vaccines. Could you describe the lesson in branding that pharma learned from marketing these products during the pandemic? So 2021 was the year that pharma corporate brands got some brand equity and street cachet by getting in badge brand conversations like Nike or Apple. People were having discussions with their family and their friends and their workmates about Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J, which is something that never really happened before in pharma's history. Traditionally, brand recognition and visibility comes from the products, which after research, development, and so on, have about 10 years to shine and be effective before they go off patent. So you've heard of things like Viagra and Botox, obviously, but probably don't know the corporate brands that brought these drugs to market. What's interesting about the vaccines themselves is that they're EUA, so there are no actual product brands associated with them. It's not allowed. What's odd is that this put the corporate brands in the direct spotlight. And what's also odd is that there isn't really fair balance involved with these vaccines. So perception has really fallen to the mainstream media and government leaders. So you don't really hear about side effects like you would on a regular pharma TV commercial, for instance. Sure, you might hear about clotting or heart issues here or there, but ultimately the image goes pretty untarnished. And that's important and relevant because companies historically have tried to stay away from corporate branding in case there was an unforeseen issue or an adverse reaction that popped up. So if there was a tough situation, the hope is that the adversity would stay with the product and not the company. That said, during the pandemic, Pfizer has really embraced the spotlight the most out of the three. I mean, they're doing the best, obviously, and they advertise the most across a variety of mediums. Who wouldn't, right? So the question is, is this something that's going to continue into the future? I've heard a few different opinions, all of which make sense, and I'll summarize for you here. Beth Beck from Finger Paints leadership team told me, yes, you will see more of this going forward. Many companies not only have multiple products, but also several therapeutic areas and divisions. 
If you layer on the complexity of a fragmented healthcare market, overarching brand architecture needs to be considered. So more and more companies are adopting a, say, company X oncology or company Y immunology. And this type of divisional branding is great because it builds credibility, paves the way for pipeline products, and allows companies to sell a technology or platform. And of course, you can bring in new talent, which is super important these days. When I spoke to Christina Falzano from the Conran Design Group, she made the point that corporate brands can actually act as stamps of quality, which gives confidence to all the stakeholders involved when a new drug is on its path to market. And on the other hand, if you do have a blockbuster, that halo can benefit the corporate brand itself. So she's thinking there'll be companies embracing an X drug by Y pharma company in the future, and perhaps less direct paths such as like connected elements and brand identities, like a shared color palette, typography, design, or naming conventions. And then there was other people that think it will revert to product branding. A product in most instances is for a very specific audience with a very specific disease or condition. And it's just a different industry. Like Nike is marketing to people with feet. So it gets a lot more specific here. So we'll see. Fran, you also wrote about the role of social media and social influencers in pharma, which I'm particularly interested in. What can we expect in that realm moving forward? Well, there's a few things to look for this year. The growth in social. Social sees more dollars each year from pharma, which has a lot to do with the shift to digital, of course, but also the empowered patient's thirst for knowledge. So people used to go to doctors back in the day and simply listen to what they said. They'd do this, take this. Now that's all changed. People are looking for answers. Back in 2019, as an example, Google disclosed that it was receiving 1 billion health-related searches per day. That's 70,000 per minute, and that's pre-pandemic. So you can see the opportunity there with digital. And if you throw that into the COVID pressure cooker, everything was forced to go digital. And of course, you had a novel coronavirus. You can imagine how much search increased during this time. So that's your base. The people are there. The people who weren't on social, like my parents, for instance, are now on social. So you have a captive audience across all generations. So what are we seeing? We're seeing all the stakeholders on social. HCPs having in-depth conversations with HCPs. HCPs observing patients, seeing what their questions are, so they can address them when asked in the office or you know on a telehealth call. HCPs interacting with patients and pharma companies in the background taking in all this data. And this is great info to inform marketing strategies, sales approaches, and the business in general. At some point over the last year, HCPs, instead of just taking photos of the swag and dropping a couple of anecdotes about a particular event or conference on social, they are now dropping a note on Twitter and saying, hey, come and meet me over on Clubhouse so we can continue the conversation. The competitor that came after Clubhouse is Twitter Spaces. I'm sure you know we saw this happen with Vine when, when Instagram just popped in and just started doing the same thing and just knocked it out. So it's going to be interesting to see that battle get played out in the future. HCPs are using this media to have authentic, open conversations. They're not like your normal scripted KOL type of conversation. It's more of a wide open thing. So I mentioned the word authentic here, and authenticity was a big buzzword and will continue to be going forward. It's all about relevance and authenticity across the board. So if you want conversions, you can't just slap a famous face on a product and hope it works out. Influencers are most effective when they're believable. So I wrote a piece earlier this year about Biohaven. They did an amazing job with Neurotech, their migraine medication, 
based on authenticity. They had a relatable patient advocate, of course, but the celebs that they enlisted across different demographics all had very known issues with migraines. So it was real. You know, Khloe Kardashian, who has a gajillion, I don't know exactly how many followers, but a lot of followers, Whoopi Goldberg, Rick Ware's NASCAR team. There are a couple examples, all which have incredible reach. So I turned to Vanessa Melendez, a social strategy at CDM Princeton, and she was telling me about a couple of ways and formats companies are utilizing to capture an audience. And social platforms across the board are trying to really hone in on the ideal length of content they can use. So there's the quick entertaining style associated with TikTok. This stuff is more informal and not highly produced. On the other side of the spectrum, we saw polished videos on YouTube and LinkedIn from J&J that received a lot of praise. One was called A Road to a Vaccine, and the other was called Eureka Moments, I believe. And they're long form. They're 30 to 45 minutes long. They highlight experts and other stakeholders. They're highly produced, and they talk about the process and science behind the scenes, which were needed in a confusing time for such a complex topic. So it'll be interesting to see what works this year and why, but I think authenticity and relevance are of the highest importance. It's been firmly established across other industries. So as an industry that has taken some shots, it's going to be really important for pharma to embrace this going forward. Speaking of social media, make sure that you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, and connected with us on LinkedIn. Wendy, social engagement's just part of the overall digital boost gained by COVID. How has that also affected patient engagement? What are some key points for pharma to watch out in this area? I remember from last year that my Outlook piece was on lines crossed due to COVID, and I don't believe I mentioned anything about the digitalization of patient engagement then, but after doing some research and writing this year's piece, I definitely think that it's one of those lines crossed. Both of my sources that I spoke with for this article were adamant that digitalization and patient services is at a new high as we enter 22, and COVID is a large part of that. So while there are many forms of digital engagement, such as apps, I think that's the one that comes to mind first, the one industry is seeing the most are virtual assistants, or to use a clear term, chatbots, which communicate with patients in real time to obtain health information. With so many of these platforms for patients available to choose from, it poses questions like, are there too many of them? And how do they choose one that's the best fit for them? In terms of there being too many, that doesn't appear to be a concern for industry. However, it falls on industry to communicate how these new technologies work so patients aren't overwhelmed. And then for the best fit for patients, that depends on where they are in their patient journey, whether it be overcoming cost, concern about a treatment, or just any other objections in general. Even though digitalization and patient services is an area of growth, there are challenges that tech companies entering the space need to overcome. Since healthcare is so heavily regulated, these companies need to adhere to the strict policies that are existent in healthcare, such as control, safety, and privacy. And then to wrap things up here, looking forward to the year ahead, I think this is an area that's poised for even more growth. And also a related bonus trend that I can leave you with that both of my sources were once again adamant about to look out for would be more prescribers entering the digital space, which could potentially improve access to information for patients. Thanks, Andy. Julian, since COVID came to town, we've heard a lot about supply chains, but how do supply chain issues affect sourcing in pharma? Thanks, Elaine. Obviously, supply chains of many industries were disrupted or derailed during COVID, but the challenges that confronted healthcare and pharma supply chains were inevitably amongst the most keenly felt. And taking this back to sourcing, an over-reliance on China and, of course, as producers and manufacturers of raw material was exposed by the virus, you know, especially with China being the first country to lock down. 
China has a policy of stockpiling commodities, and that created significant challenge in the US, for example, around rare manufacturing supplies and the impact on vaccines. And of course, a large amount of the world's PPE, the personal protective equipment, was actually made in the Hubei province in central China, where the COVID outbreak first started. And we know how keenly those PPE shortages were felt in the West. Now, in terms of sourcing, tend to differentiate sourcing for manufacturing and for commercial side of the pharma industry, but the two overlap. PPE is a good example. For example, when pharma companies in the West needed that PPE to send their sales teams into doctor's offices where they were allowed to go in. And so that was a major impact when there was a shortage of PPE, especially with so many other things going on and businesses had to stop in order to get those materials in. So people I spoke to, a couple of the sort of sources for this, pointed out this is these problems were particularly acute for small biopharma companies, small emerging companies. Small pharma companies don't have procurement departments. You know, they're really focused on cash flow. And it's been said that sort of 80 to 85 percent of farm companies don't have procurement departments. So one solution there is that, you know, outsourcing commercial procurement is one way forward, but also data analytics is going to be another one. But I think overall, if we, we take this back to the crisis beginning in China, it's led companies now to rethink their relationships with single source suppliers, you know, and ask that question of whether this reliance on global supply chains and whether just-in-time manufacturing is really working. There's been a lot of companies who can't make things because they can't get just one item, one component. So going forward, companies are going to be revising their strategies in terms of, if we look at manufacturing and think about onshoring a lot of components, even if that costs them more because you know they've been losing money anyway. And one operating officer of a specialty medicine company told me that you know he was amazed at just how much we took for granted before the pandemic, how much we took for granted just-in-time delivery on customers and distributors wanting to keep their inventories as low as possible. He says that the pandemic really shook up the snow globe as far as that's concerned. So going forward, I think companies are going to start to plan for shortages more, shortages of certain products, be much more prepared, think a little bit more in the long term. And of course, this isn't just about pandemic preparedness. This is any kind of disaster preparedness, which is an earthquake, a hurricane, anything you you want to mention. Thanks, Julian. Obviously, supply chain, COVID, there's a lot to talk about regarding China, but there's also a push to grow the biotech sector there. How's that developing and what can we expect? Yes, it was back in 2015 that the Chinese government announced its 10-year plan to become the global leader in a number of high-tech industries. Biotech was perhaps an unexpected part of the plan, as people knew that China's strength lay in manufacturing and other areas such as robotics. But since then, China's doubled down on its support for biotech. And in our January issue, I consult Farm Exec Editorial Advisory Board member Peter Young and Research Partnerships Rachel Howard to see where China is on that 10-year plan and what that means for advanced biopharma markets such as the US's. So the, the Chinese government's been investing huge amounts of money to stimulate innovation in the sector. And as well as this, there's been an explosion of venture capital firms to provide funding as well. The university system has been beefed up considerably, in Peter Young's words, and the number of high-quality biochemistry graduates, for example, has gone up dramatically. There are attempts also to create bioclusters in China to facilitate collaboration between that academia and also education and industry. One notable one is the city of Suzhou, which is home to Bio Bay Industrial Park. So to add to that, there's the issue of Chinese scientists in the West who are going home for various reasons, which is one of them being um, the country offering programs to attract talent in STEM, in science, technology, engineering and mathematics. So quite a few things to look at. But as the country is, there is still a problem of its uh, reputation of its Chinese made products. China's still behind in regard to things like advanced mRNA technology. There's the example of Chinese-made COVID-19 vaccines, you know, where they're very, very widely used in that part of the world. Uh, they, that's the dominant vaccine, but they're not 
taken really seriously in the West. And Peter Young also notes that while China is catching up with the US, it's still behind in terms of this advanced technology and research capabilities, advanced research capabilities in universities and institutions like that. So if we're looking at this as a race for biopharma dominance, if you like, you know, we must remember also that the sector stock has soared in the US over the last year because of the COVID response. And this paves the way for further strong funding of the industry here. So while that gap between US and Chinese biotech is narrowing, there continues to be a gap, and that's likely to continue. But the industry in China will continue to advance to 2022. And um, beyond that, you know, it will still present challenges for the industry in the West, but also opportunities, um, certainly with multinational companies, you know, continuing to forge major partnerships with Chinese biopharma. Definitely something to keep an eye on. Thanks, Julian. So finally, Lisa, could you discuss how third-party entities continue to create barriers to pharmaceutical benefits for patients? Thanks, Miranda. So for this trend, I wanted to take a look at the increased burden being taken on by people who receive medical and prescription benefits through their employer, which accounts for about 61% of people between the age of 18 and 64. So unfortunately, the picture looks even bleaker than about, I think it was two or three years ago when we touched on this topic in the form of copay accumulators and maximizers. But I interviewed the CEO and president of the National Pharmaceutical Council, John O'Brien, who says that there's been an incredible influx of third-party vendors on that end, just trying to get a piece of the I think it's about $350 billion prescription pie and their business models aren't entirely pragmatic or helpful for patients or employers or insurers. There's been little to no inroads made into educating employers about the negative consequences of the current trends with health managed plans, including aggressive tiered formularies with high patient cost sharing, a blurring of the line between medical and pharmacy benefit, increased employee share of premiums, higher deductibles, and what I mentioned before, the copay accumulators and maximizers. So again, employers tend to use insurance brokers that tie together disparate parts of an employee plan. And they're trying to achieve what the employer says they want, which is lower costs to them. But the flip side is exactly what we called it, which is the increased burden on patients, which equals poorer health and higher out-of-pocket costs. So the one silver lining maybe is with the current retention and resignation issues in many industries. The key might be for finance and HR to take a deeper dive into their benefit plans and see what they're truly asking of their employees as a path toward retention. But in the meantime, pharma is pretty much unable to crack this employer egg, you know, to try and get them educated on the downsides of the choices they make basically because the people that make decisions on the health plans are not the normal people in the market access repertoire. But pharma leaders are currently questioning the value of their talks with existing business coalitions, which seem, as I mentioned, largely ineffective. And they are looking more at the MPC, the National Pharmaceutical Council, and other types of organizations for guidance and resources. Well, Lisa, Julian, Fran, Andy, thank you so much for sharing your insights on what we can expect during the coming year and beyond for pharma. Thank you. Thank you. you. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? 
At Truth Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. Truth Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truthserumntwk.com. And now it's time for this week's leadership tips from pharma execs. Hello, I'm Mike Hennessy Jr., the CEO of MJH Life Sciences. I'm excited to have the opportunity to join today's podcast and share with you one of the key leadership tips that I truly believe in, as well as one freebie. My leadership tip is to never stop learning and ensure that you surround yourself with people who are willing to challenge you and push you to be better. The world around us is constantly changing, and we need to do our part to stay out ahead of things. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's PharmExec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the PharmExec staff is working on. Remember, you can always find us on the web at PharmExec.com, on Twitter at PharmExec, on Instagram at PharmExecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of PharmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email Editor-in-Chief Elaine Quilici at E-Q-U-I-L-I-C-I at MJHLifeSciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at T-B-A-K-E-R at MJHLifeSciences.com.